Well, good morning. Twas the week before Christmas. Next week we'll we'll pause our study through Revelation, uh, the seven churches to look at the incarnation. But this week we are in chapter two. We're going to be looking at verses twelve to seventeen. If you're a guest with us or if you're watching online, we've been working through the seven letters to the churches that are in Asia Minor, that is modern-day Turkey. And what we're, we have done is we have began in Ephesus, we went to Smyrna, and now we're at a city called Pergamum. That's a little bit further north, and, and, and now we're beginning to move a little inland, so off of the coast as, as we keep our study and keep reading these letters. These letters are written to the church, and so today... I am not speaking to those that are outside of the faith, so to speak. I'm actually speaking to the church because Christ is speaking to the church. And so John Stott has been one of the most helpful guys as, as I've studied this, points this out, and we mentioned this last week, that the, true marks, the marks of a true church are love, suffering, and today, truth. So that's what we're learning. We're boiling this down to what the Lord wants us to learn as we hear from Christ as he speaks to his blood-bought church. And so let us hear from him today as we stand to our feet. This is God's word to his people. Revelation 2, beginning in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, now we have come to this, your third church. And Lord, every church, including this one, has its members who are under pressure. Some of those pressures are from without the body of Christ, the church. They're just pressures of this world that we live in. Some of the pressures are internal, inside our own selves, inside our own families, inside of the church, Lord. So thank you that you love us enough to both commend us and to correct us. For you correct those that you love. And so today we start off with an attitude of gratitude that you, our Father, have loved us enough to speak the truth and love to your blood-bought people. Lord, may we have ears to hear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So let's jump right in there. If you've got your Bible, look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. It says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him, that's Christ, who has the sharp two-edged sword. You could say that Jesus has a sword and he intends on using it. Gets our attention, doesn't it? How do we even know how to use a sword in the age of, let's just be nice, probably call it today, niceology. Just be nice. We teach our, our boys, don't we? Boy gets in a tussle, it gets suspended. He may even get kicked out of school. Just be nice. Just play nice. Oh my goodness, don't touch each other. Start throwing around these words. If it happens, parents descend to rescue. We refuse to even let our little boys act like little boys anymore. And then one day, it's what's going to come. We're going to tell them they got to fight. In reality, we all have to learn how to fight. Here's what we're doing today. We're medicating our little children into zombies, forgetting one day that they're going to need to fight. Yes, they're going to be commanded to fight, either for their God or for their families or for their country. Listen, this is an important statement. God is good, but He's not always nice. God is good. He's not always nice. This niceology doesn't work, you see, because Jesus is not going to be nice to the wicked. If you think that, you need to close Revelation and don't you dare read anymore because it is going to blow that out of the water. He's not going to be nice to false teachers who infiltrate his blood-bought church and prey on his kids. No, he will not be nice. And listen, he's not going to be nice. And neither will you be if someone breaks into your house tonight and starts to get on your family. You're not going to be nice either. God is good. It's not always nice. He has a sword in his hand this morning. And he's already told us about this sword. Look back in Revelation 1. And look at verse 16. He already has this sword. This sword is, is a symbolism of Jesus' power to come and judge and conquer his enemies. And listen, this is the soberness of the message today. He has turned this sword toward his church. So we need to listen because it is only Christ who has absolute power. Here's the reality. The pressure they're under from the outside is that a proconsul in, in Rome had, he sat on a judgment seat. That's the biblical imagery that you got to have in your mind. He sits on a judgment seat and he sat in Pergamum, the capital city, and he had the authority to kill you if you wanted to. To implement their brand of justice. And he's reminding them, he doesn't have absolute authority. I do. And I have a sword, and I always base using my sword on truth. There is a common theme that we should be beginning to feel in every one of these churches. The church is under pressure, yet they're called to hold fast. To what do we hold fast? Under pressure, sometimes under pressure, it is hard to see what we need to hold fast to. It's even harder still to act on what we must hold fast to. So these three churches have taught us and are teaching us to hold fast to the truth and love 
especially as we're under pressure. The Lord attends his church. I've been saying that every week. The Lord attends his church. He is in the midst of his church. He's in the midst of this church right here. And he's in the midst of a church today that has abandoned the gospel. He knows what's being preached from his pulpit in his church. He attends the church in Pergamum and commends them for their devotion to Christ in the midst of religious hostility while he calls on gospel compromisers to repent. That's our main idea today. The Lord first commends. This is, like we said last week, a real commendation. It's not setting them up to correct them. They're doing this well. The Lord commends them for standing in the truth. Look at verse 13. This is, this is standing in truth in midst of the external pressure. The, there's internal pressure. We're going to talk about that. There's external pressure. The external pressure is how they are living in life and the pressure they have them on them because they're believers living in a hostile land. Here's what he says. I know where you live. Now, this is not a threat. Like maybe, maybe you've said to somebody, I know where you live. I'm going to come get you. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, I know where you live. You live where Satan's throne is. The Lord walks among his people, not just in the midst of the church, but in the midst of their daily life. He knows the pressure that you're under right now. He's aware. He walks among his people. See, these people lived in a religious city. The Greco-Roman culture did not devote themselves to one God. They had a pantheon of gods, and they would, didn't mind adding one if they needed to if it suited them. Remember, the Greco-Roman culture was not as much about worship as they was about veneration. They offered things and venerated the gods so the gods would give them what they wanted. That stands the completely opposite of the Christian worldview, who worships our God because He is the only true God and He is worthy of our worship. No matter what comes our way, we will worship the Lord. Remember, Daniel stands at odds with the world that they live in. They refused, Christians refused to swear any allegiance other than the one true God. And this God had revealed himself through the person of Jesus Christ. Interesting, have you ever been the back of a, of a truck? I saw an ambulance come by. They've got, that, they've got that symbol with the snake on it. It's a God called Ascalipus. He was a serpent God, the God of healing. And this temple had medical wards, a medical school, and of course, its priests. And one of the things you could do there, they believe this brought healing, was you could go into the temple, you could lie on the floor, and these tame snakes would, would crawl around you, and if they touched you, it was as if the God was touching you. Now think about that. As Christians, when we think of a snake, what symbolism, what does that point us to? Yeah, we go back to the garden. We go back to Satan. It is not a symbol of healing, but of death, of a curse, of sin. You begin to see this completely opposite worldviews as they collide. There was not only that, there was an altar to Zeus who jutted out on a cliff for all of them to see. And all of those paled to the fact that Caesar worship was in full force in Pergamum. They did not worship Caesar. Well, we'll see in a minute what would happen. They lived in a religious city. They lived in a historic city. Pergamum had been the capital for over 300 years. A king, a king named Attalus 
wheeled Pergamum to the Roman Empire when he died, of which they made it the capital of this province in Asia. So it was a city not only known for its medicine, it had a library that was known all over the world. It had 200,000 volumes in this library. A religious city, an educated city, a culturally aware city, Satan city. They lived in Satan city. You see it, verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. This is probably symbolic as, we, as you work through the rest of the book. You'll see this terminology of Babylon. Babylon is not simply, not merely supposed to conjure in your mind a particular place, but a particular worldview, a particular ideology, which is set against God. So it's possible that this was the Babylon of the East and Rome was the Babylon of the West. Needless to say, this was a stronghold of the devil that was making life miserable for Christians. They were standing firm in truth. You see that? Yet, despite that, you hold fast to my name and you don't deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed where Satan dwells. The Christians are being commended. They're holding fast. And it was, notice, it's Jesus' name, and it is Jesus' faith. We don't hold fast to something that is just hold fast to what we believe. We hold fast to what was given to us. We have no right to change the truth because the truth is God's truth, and he has given it to us. They are holding fast no matter what it cost them, my name and my faith, we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. The guarding of truth is the, is the issue here. He's commending them because from, despite the external pressure, they are guarding this truth of who Jesus is. Their faith in him is strong. Jesus is not only concerned that we love him, He's not only concerned that we love each other. He's not only concerned that we suffer faithfully, and He is. But he is concerned that we should believe in Him and hold fast to that, no matter what comes our way. John Stott, there again, I'm, he's been the guy that's been so helpful, says it this way, Love, now this is good tension here. I love, I love the quotes that have tension in it. Love becomes sentimentality. If it is not strengthened by truth, and truth becomes hard if it is not softened by love. Do you get that? I, I, I love words. It's not my geeky that way. So let me change a couple of words and, re, and requote this quote. I don't think Brother Stott will mind. Love becomes mushiness if it is not strengthened by truth, and truth becomes callous. If it is not softened by love. You've got to have the truth in love. Just like mushy. You ever had put something in your mouth and you expect and crunchy and you leave your cereal in the bowl too long with the milk and it becomes mushy? Hard to eat that stuff. That's what love is with no truth. With no absolute standard. It's just weak cereal. And notice what happens if you give people the truth but you don't love them. If there's no empathy, it feels hard, like rubbing them with sandpaper. Ephesians 4.15 says this, 
as the church, rather, we should speak the truth in love. This is important because, listen, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, for whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint which it is equipped. And when every part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You can't have growth, you can't have unity, and you can't have health unless you have both truth and love. And they are holding fast even though they watched the death of one of their brothers, Antipas. We don't know much about Antipas. Only what the Lord says here, that he identified him as a faithful witness. By the way, that's what Jesus calls himself in chapter 1, verse 5. He stayed faithful, and so this church has seen one of their very own die for the faith because they held fast, and yet they did not swerve. They did not shrink back. And in the same breath, he issues a but. But, now the Lord is confronts them because they are compromising the truth. So we, we, we get these folks called the Nicolaitans and the Balaamites, the followers of Balaam. What is up with that? Look at verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So, so who are these people? Well, you can study this later. It's a, an amazing story from beginning to end. Numbers 22 to 24 speaks of a man, of a prophet named Balaam, who was going to be paid well to curse God's people. The problem was, God wouldn't let him curse them. He ended up blessing them. Remember the story? But most of us don't read the rest of the story. Balaam figured out another way to mess up the sons of Israel, the men who were leading. He said, just invite them to these feasts. And they go to these pagan feasts. We'll get the Moabite women to seduce them. And they will engage in immorality. And I know God. God will get angry and he'll judge them. So we get, they get a curse anyway. So since I can't curse them, we'll use their own flesh against them. And we'll bring God, God's curse on them. That's exactly what happened. So listen, this is important to connect. Balaam becomes a prototype. He's the prototype of all corrupt teachers who will lead believers into fatally compromising their faith for the fleeting pleasures of sin. He's the prototype. That's why he's brought up here. It's just two ways of talking about the same people. Because we have these people that are in their day, the same as in the days of the Old Testament called the Nicolaitans. Uh, some people, many people believe that this was Nicholas. You can read about Nicholas in Acts 6-5. He was one of the first, so to speak, deacons, or the prototype we might call for the deacons. M many people think this is the person. Can't verify that absolutely. <laughs> when I read Acts 6-5, I always say if I was Nicholas, I'd want people to give me the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> and, uh, but needless to say, if that's the case, he had walked away from the faith and began to compromise and teach other people to do the same. That's what this doctrine is. It was a doctrine of compromise. It, it's what we might call in our society tolerance. Tolerance. We need to be tolerant 
need to have a different attitude towards this, the pagan society and all of these pantheon of gods that they're worshiping and their lifestyles that are connected with it. You don't need to be so mean believers. We need to be more tolerant believers. This was the message of the Nicolaitans. You see, in that culture, and it's becoming more and more predominant in this culture, and it is in many places, sexual freedom was normal. It was nothing for a married man to go to the temple and have relationships with a woman there. They didn't consider that to be a big deal. And the Lord begins to save them. And enters the Nicolaitans into these people that begin to live holy lives and say, what's the big deal? Y'all need to take a little bit of a different approach. Y'all need to be more inclusive. This played out especially in the context of all of these pagan feasts that were going on all the time. In other words, this would be like if you were a nurse and you're going to have a holiday party at the strip club. You're going to go? More or less, are you going to participate? The Nicolaitans would say, sure, you're free in Christ to do that. Nobody's perfect. You worked hard. Everybody else there is participating. Besides, if you do something you're not supposed to, the Lord's going to forgive you anyway. It's a holiday. Relax, believers. That's the message. Here's what Jesus is saying to his church. Truth must confront this compromising. Notice in verse 14. But I have a few things against you. Now notice the language here. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam. Down in verse 15. So also, you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. In other words, the church in Pergamum had the opposite problem of the church in Ephesus. You remember the church in Ephesus? They would test and seek out false teaching and remove it from the body of Christ. But not Pergamum. Though they held fast of the external pressures, they allowed internally for false teachers to come in to begin to preach this perverted view of Christian freedom. The result was immorality within the body of Christ. And so he said, you have some. In other words, there is a you in this and there is a them in this. What the Lord is clearly teaching here in His Word is there are some among the body of Christ that are not born again, that have snuck into the body, have infiltrated the body of Christ in order to deceive God's people. They are not truly the people of God, but they are hurting the people of God. They are nice, they are faithful givers, and they teach our small groups. That's what He's saying, and you've allowed it. You've compromised. Why are they, what's going on with these Nicolaitans? And those that have begun to follow them. You see, people compromise for a reason. We always compromise because there's something to benefit from it. There's a gain. There was a gain in this culture, both materially and socially, to compromise the gospel. Listen, you know this is true. Watch the TV, all these guys come in with all their, all their bling. There is mega money to be made from compromising the truth and substituting positive thinking and offering anybody anything that their fallen heart wants anyway. Offer it to them and they will send you their money and they will bow down to it because that's what their fallen heart wants. 
Listen, idolatry has always been big business. It's big business in King's Mountain where people who claim the name of Christ go down to a place and put their money in machines that preys on women and girls. If you don't think there's prostitution and sex trafficking going on in that industry, you got your head stuck in the sand. And listen, Jesus Christ has got the sword in his hand and he's speaking to the church. You better repent of that. We are God's people, and we must not compromise. They were compromising. You see, the issue complaint is not against just the Nicolaitans, the them. It's against the you who allow it with their mouths closed and their hands in their pockets. Truth must confront not only compromise, but indifference. What happens is when it comes to the internal aspect of the church, they were indifferent. What was the big deal? And to this, verse 16, Jesus says, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. I cannot discern this is anything other than telling the church that we should be practicing biblical church discipline that's, practiced, that's, that's taught in Matthew 18. And you know this is true if you've been in the church for many years. If you're new with us, watch us online, you haven't been in the church, you need to just receive this as God's message to the church to, to begin to clean up many of the things that many of us have experienced that the church has done wrong. We need to repent of that. It's the wholesale failure of the church today is that we have replaced nice and thrown out holiness. And the church has not only tolerated corruption from within, but we have, by doing so, we have sold our reputation in the very community that we are commanded to love and truth. The Lord is calling us to not be indifferent. That if you love somebody, you will discipline them. And parents, you know that's true. You know it's true. But you're not going to let your child run out in the highway just so you can make your no a yes. You're going to love them in truth. You're going to stop them. You're going to correct them. This is also a call to remove predators from among the flock. Man, that wolf is... He's a nice guy, though. But every day we wake up, that wolf's going to set up camp in our sheep. He's a nice guy. I sit around, I, I go out to coffee with him. We can have the best conversations about doctrine. But every day when I, I wake up, I'm missing a sheep for some reason. I can't figure out what happened to him. The wolf's eating him. That's what's happening to him. Saying, don't remain indifferent. The truth matters. Proverbs 6, 19 says this, The Lord hates a false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. So what should we stand for? Right? How do we take all of that? We're hearing about these folks, Nicolaitans. What are the truth worth standing for? Go back to verse 13. I think, I think we see it. He says, You hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith. See, the problem with what they were they were they failed at was not that they failed for holding my name and my faith to the external pressures, but they began to compromise it internally within the body of Christ. It's a good quote. I know you've heard it. 
We must preserve unity in the essentials, liberty in the non-essentials, and charity in all things. What is essential? And listen, here's the truth. This doesn't mean anything to you. Just ignore it. If everything is an essential, nothing is. There are essentials. There are things we must not compromise on. And listen, my name, Jesus' name is one of them. Jesus' name is the revelation of who he is and what he's done. A name in that day was critical. It said everything about you. Hold to his person. Hold to my work. We hold with, with clenched fist to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We hold it. We don't compromise on that. His, his humanity and His deity is not open for debate. Listen, to hold to the truth is to hold that He is both Lord and He is Savior. And any church that stands up and tells you you can make Jesus your Savior and not make you your Lord is not teaching you the gospel. How does that work? Because He has my name and you also have my faith. You have not only Jesus, but we have the content of all of who He is and all of what He does and the implication for what that means in our life. Faith is... It's not some kind of intellectual assent to agree with something on a card and assign your name to it. It is to make Him the Lord and Savior of your life in this life and the next. It is both personal and it is corporate. That's not all that we should hold fast to. Their failure, their wholesale failure as a church was the truth about holiness. You see, we hold fast to the person and work of Jesus Christ, right? Well, if that's true, then our lives exist to live as a reflection of His person and work. You with me? And so, if we, comp- if we don't compromise to say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and I believe in His life and His death and His resurrection, but then we step out and the hobnob in order to gain something socially or materially, then we do not live as a reflection of Him, and we have denied the name, and we have denied the faith by the way we live our life. And neither one of those can be compromised in the Christian faith. That's what He's teaching us today. Don't compromise. I know we've forgotten some of these teachings in Scripture, but Paul tells the church in 1 Corinthians 5.11, to not even keep company with people who say they're Christians but live immorally. That's how serious it is. That's how damaging it is to a community to have people who profess the name of Christ but live lives immorally out there. They were not necessarily following the Nicolaitans. They were just tolerating them from within the church. Paul says this, What shall we say then? It's Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So we must hold fast to not only to the person and work of Jesus, but to our lives that are lived in a reflection of His person 
and work. And the travesty of, that, of the church in Pergamum was they had took the gospel of grace and turned it into a license to sin. And so the Lord is coming to judge. Verse 16, Therefore repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against you with the sword of my mouth. He, he's calling them, listen, Instead of feeling this, this is not meant to be, like I said, the sandpaper. This is meant to be a father who loves his kids, who says, sit down for a minute. we got to have a conversation. I'm doing it because I love you. If the Lord did not love you, He could just allow you to go the way you want to go, and you'll go straight to hell all by yourself. He loves us enough today to sit us in a church building today and to hear the gospel of grace that says, you can repent. He's calling his church to repent. He's calling the Nicolaitans to repent. This begs the question, though. Who's responsible for the church? So this is going on, right, in their church. The Nicolaitans are leading. They're probably, and we see this in other places in the Bible, they normally get in positions of leadership. Who's responsible for that? This is why, brothers and sisters, we are an elder-led church and congregationally ruled. Because both of those two things are important. You see, the pastors, the elders, are responsible for truth. I am not standing up here by myself. I am simply the first among an equal of a, of a plural group of pastors that if I step outside of the truth today, one of those brothers is going to have a conversation with me tomorrow. And you can count on it. I rest in that. I love them for that. And so should you. They shepherd the vision and the direction of the church. But brothers and sisters, when there is a decision to be made, we will call a meeting and we will present it to, before the body and the body will cast their vote because we, brothers and sisters, we are responsible for this church that Christ has entrusted to us. This is why meaningful church membership is important. It is why correcting each other when we're wrong is important. It is why you should be discipling somebody in this church and should be discipled by somebody in this church. So when something goes wrong in your life, you have somebody who will take you to coffee and say, I can tell something's wrong. You need that in your life. And some of you are going to counseling where nobody ever opens up the Bible and never forces you to. I'm here telling you today that is not biblical counseling. Biblical counseling pushes you towards the church and pushes you towards your Bible. Because they love you. And they love you in truth. This is important, this repentance. Because there is an imminent judgment coming. Therefore, repent, verse 16. If not, I will come to you. Look at the word. Soon. <laughs> soon. And war against them. Here's what he's saying. You need to repent and do what's right. Because I'm going to judge them, and you don't want to throw your lot in with them. I'm coming soon. What does this mean, soon? It's sort of, I think I know, and I'm not sure. <laughs> Is it he's coming 
in history to deal with them? Or is he coming at the second coming? The answer is, I think, yes. I believe my personal conviction that he's telling them he's coming soon there. Just like he tells other ones, I'm coming, I'm going to, I'm going to blow out your light. I'm going to remove the Spirit of God from your church because you won't hold to the truth. He's also coming again. The picture here is he's going to use his sword. Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of souls and of spirit and of joints and of marrow and discerning of thoughts and intentions of the heart. Verse 13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and are exposed of him to whom we must give an account. And who is he speaking to here in this book? Believers. Jesus is saying he will judge and destroy anybody who bows the knee on the side of idolatry. Whether that is idolatry is casting their, their allegiance to Caesar are following those who preach a false gospel. But to those who hold fast, there is a victorious reward. In verse 17, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. (laughs) It's like, man, this seems to be good, but... What in the world is he talking about? So let's try to understand it the best we can. There is some mystery here. And much of what we look for in heaven is wonderfully mysterious. But there is things we can understand. The hidden manna. We remember the manna. Psalms 78 said it is the food from God. It is the bread from heaven. Not only that, but remember there was some manna put in the Ark of the Covenant. This manna seems from all that I can study and all that we can tell in in context is just a picture, an image, a symbol of eternal reward. It's eternal reward for the faithful. Though some of the judgment will happen limited here, but ultimately in the second coming, what is also going to happen when Christ returns is reward. He's going to reward those who held fast. He's not there again. Has he promised anybody to escape this? Anybody seen that anywhere? If you have, come tell me. There's no escape promised here. There's only a call to endure. And there is also a call that they're going to be rewarded. There is going to be, you see, a consummation celebration. Revelation 19.9 says this, And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. So there is coming, when Christ returns, a consummation and a celebration. This manna then pointing to that time, but also we have this white stone with a new name on it. In other words, the white stone is another way of describing the same reward. He's describing the same eternal reward from two different things that they would have understood well in their culture. You see, in ancient days, a white stone could mean all kinds of things. That's why we can't know exactly for sure what he's got in his mind here, but we can, we can get pretty close. 
So if you're on trial and they came through and they handed you a white stone, you were acquitted. They handed you a black stone, done. Guilty. They would often give white stones for the admission of different things, different festivals, different feasts. If you had a white stone, they'd let you in. If they didn't, they wouldn't. A lot of parables, a lot of Jesus talking about kingdom of heaven ought to be coming to your mind right now. When someone triumphed in a game, they would give them a white stone. And only those who triumphed in the game were invited to the the banquet that was for celebration of them that conquered. That was just normal. Most likely, that's what he's pointing them to. That, that we're not saying it's going to be easy. We're not saying you're not going to have, we're not going to have pressure from sometimes within our churches and from within our families and even within ourselves. And that we're not going to have pressure from without. We're saying, hold fast to Christ because it's worth it. There is a banquet coming. There is a time of reward. And notice the name It's what most people believe that is, that though there are many of us believers and they were all promised reward, there's something very personal about this reward. The only people who know the name are the ones that's given the stone. It's eternal, this reward. It is personal, this reward. So what? The question should be, pretty simple. Will you contend for the faith? Will you hold fast? Listen to Jude 3. Jude 3. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that once for all delivered to the saints. We see this throughout the Bible. Jude saying, man, there's all kinds of things I'd like to talk to you about, but these stinking false teachers won't quit coming. So I need to tell you that you're going to have to hold fast because these false teachers are going to come in every generation of the church. We have to deal with this issue of truth. Contend. It means to struggle. There again, this language is the same language. It's a language of the, an athletic competition by which we must struggle to win. Command is to struggle In other words, now put all this together. There is a context. There is a command. The context is suffering. I can't promise you that it's not going to happen in your life and in mine. It is. And listen, when you look at all of the people and maybe each other and think that them over there and them over there are not suffering like you do, it's just because we're not being authentic and real with each other because we're all struggling somewhere. Amen? Amen. And we should be struggling together. The command is to love the truth and love each other. The command is to hold on to the truth, but hold on to each other. Especially because our context is suffering. Don't do it by yourself. You're not supposed to. God didn't design you to do that. We learned that in the garden. The call... To reject fear by putting on faithfulness. This is the call to be courageous. Fighting fear in faith brings conviction in truth. Fighting fear in faith 
brings conviction and truth. Don't be surprised when you begin to struggle with to be faithful what the Lord has told you to do, that all of a sudden you begin to get these convictions. It's wrong. I can't put up with that. I'm not going with that. Sometimes we go a little crazy there for a season. But it's just because we're growing. Fighting fear brings faith, and faith brings conviction. How can you guard yourself today? How can you contend tomorrow? A couple of simple things. Guard who and what you listen to. Because it doesn't matter whether it's Christian or not. It's teaching you something. You ever really pulled up a country song and listened to the words? My goodness gracious. My, my wife loves music. And she's taught me all kind of things about music and about words and, and stuff. And I can't help now but to listen not only to how simple some music is, but also what in the world are they saying? Be guard on who you listen to. Not every preacher and teacher should be listened to with your guard down. I would say none of them should, including this one. Every radio program and podcast you watch, why are you listening to it? What is it teaching? Who is it really about? In other words, we probably need to listen less and meditate more. Do you know that every TV program and every movie you watch is teaching you something about truth? Every one of them is. Every one of them has a worldview attached to it that it wants you to believe. Can I ask you something, parents? What are your kids studying in school? Do you know? That's how you can contend for the faith. They're your children, and you will stand before the Almighty for how how much you have taught them not the teachers. What are they learning? That's how we can contend. In other words, here's what I'm asking you today. You, couples, y'all need to go to dinner. You need to, you need to have a date and say the preacher told us to. Talk about what your non-negotiables are as a family. What are your essentials? Because it's too late once the storm comes. When Caesar's standing with his sword and tells you you must bow, you better have already decided, I will not bow before Caesar. Because his sword is coming. And how are you going to contend? What is our essentials? You see, here's what sometimes I'm afraid of. That some of us will fight tooth and nair about our end time scheme. And we've already let the devil in the back door. Don't fight over non-essentials. We love to talk about them. Love to debate them. Love to have coffee and talk about those things. But we're not going to break unity over it. But what we must know is who is Jesus? What has he called us to do? And how do we live for him? Can I ask you a question? What do you believe? If the only thing that could speak is your life. Let's pray. Lord, it is our heart's plea. And Lord, you know our hearts. We long not only to believe what is right, but to live faithfully and consistently in light of what we believe. And Lord, we all fall short of that. And Lord, we confess that corporately, collectively. 
And Lord, we are grateful that the church that's committed to the truth, but Lord, we are not immune to the Nicolaitans coming in the back door. And so, Lord, may we prepare ourselves to fight the fights that are worthy to be fought and to not fight those things that are not worth us fighting over. Because there's people going to hell in this community. Oh God, forgive your church because we are so competitive. Gather us together around the truth. The King's Mountain is getting more and more lost by every generation. Lord, how do we get into the schools? When they have removed you, God. Lord, we are your instruments. Into your hands, we have committed our lives to be used as you see fit. Whether we live or whether we die, Lord, we are yours. And so, God, use Battleground Community Church. Lord, we pray that you would use King's Mountain. Baptist and First Baptist and First Wesleyan. Lord, we, we desire that your church is, holds fast to the truth and is used by you. And so, God, now we come to long to declare to you of what we believe and why we believe it. We come now to not only worship you, but to receive grace from you as we come to your table to remember your son in His person, in His work, in the fact that we are Your children. And so, Lord, receive our worship and fill us with Your grace. Because we need it. And because we are Yours. In Jesus' name, amen.